Good evening. I want to talk tonight about practicing with disappointment. So we had a, we had a disappointing event. So the Sangha has been working towards a transmission of the five mindfulness trainings, which is a really big deal uh, in our practice about uh, coming to set the aspiration to practice ethical living. So we've worked on this for about three months together and been very diligent. And then things happened that we couldn't control and we had to let go. So I know that I was really disappointed. I, mean, I felt like as a person who's been helping the Sangha move toward this, that I couldn't make this happen. I was really disappointed. I was really sad for the Sangha. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of suffering came up in me around that. And I figured other people were probably disappointed too that have been working on this. So that's why I wanted to talk about disappointment today. Uh, the Buddha had a lot to say about this. Uh, and tonight I want to use a, a sutra that we don't usually look at. Um, it's called Loka Vipati Sutra. And in this sutra, he outlines the failings of the world. Sounds like a big topic. <clears throat> and this is one of those uh, sutras that comes from the, the uh, Theravadan tradition. So it's, it's written down what was transmitted orally for centuries. So it's kind of formulaic. It has a a way of repeating things over and over and over again that I imagine was uh, uh, was the way that they remembered stuff. You, know, you can remember the formula, so you say the formula over and over again. Another way I've heard these things described is that they're almost like chorus and a verse of a song. You know, there's a verse and you say the verse and now you come back to the chorus to, to chant the chorus or say the chorus until you remember the next verse. Uh, so it, it's got a little flavor of that. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to, uh, to come back to some high points and read some high points for us. So, the failings of the world. In this sutra, the focus of this sutra is to talk about what are called the eight worldly winds. They're pairs of things that go together. And we think we want to pursue one side of the pair, and we think we want to flee the other side of the pair. So those, those pairs are gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, and then finally happiness and unhappiness. So those are the eight worldly wins. Mm. So what the, the sutra tells us is how, first how, an uninstructed person engages with these winds that blow through our lives. And here's what it says. Gain arises for an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person. He does not reflect, gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He does not discern it as it actually is. His mind remains consumed with the gain. His mind remains consumed with the loss, with the status, the disgrace, the censure, the praise, the pleasure. His mind remains consumed with the pain. He welcomes the arisen gain 
and rebels against the arisen loss. He welcomes the arisen status and rebels against the arisen disgrace. Again, going through all of the four pairs, which I won't read every bit. As he is thus engaged in welcoming and rebelling, welcoming, grasping, rebelling, pushing away, he is not released from birth, aging, or death, from sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, or despairs. He is not released, I tell you, from suffering and stress. So what this, what this part is saying is, how do we engage with, with these things, these eight worldly winds, when we don't have a practice? And the way we engage with them is to grasp onto them and push them away. We grasp onto those things that we want, the gain, and we push away the loss. And we do that forever and ever, thinking that this will be happy. This will make us happy. And it, of course, doesn't. We know this from our, our own lives. So the sutra goes on to say how, do, how a well-instructed person receives these very same things. Now, gain arises for a well-instructed disciple of the noble ones. She reflects, gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. She discerns it as it actually is. You know, in the first one, it's almost exactly the same wording. But now she's able to discern what it really is. She sees that it is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. goes on. Her mind does not remain consumed with the gain. Her mind does not remain consumed with the loss. And on through all of them. She does not welcome the arisen gain or rebel against the arisen loss. And again, through all four of the things. She does not rebel or grab on. This is the difference. This is the distinction. This, the distinguishing factor between the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones and the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person. So what he's telling us in this sutra is that without a practice, we pursue what we think is gain and we flee what we think is loss. But with a practice, now all of a sudden we can look more deeply into their nature and see that that is not something that's going to get us happiness. We can pursue gain all we want, but will never pay off. And we can flee loss all we want, but we'll never get away from it. So it's not like the instructed person and the uninstructed person have any different life, but they have a different way of relating to what arises. Okay, so this all sounds uh, rather heady and um, difficult to, to put into practice. You know, it's one thing to hear these words, but what, what does this really mean? What, what do we do? How do we practice with this? How do we become a well-instructed disciple of the noble one? To use the phrase of the sutra. <clears throat> well, we have our particular challenges with doing this. We, as these people living here, under these circumstances, in this place, and at this time. It doesn't do us much good to look at what it was like in the time of the Buddha for the disciples of the Buddha. Let's look at what it's like for us right here. So most of us, maybe all of us, live in what we call the heavenly realm. Things are really easy for us. 
really easy. You know, in the, in the kind of nomenclature uh, that's being used a lot today, we are privileged. So by privilege means we enjoy systemic advantages just because we happen to live in this place, in this time, in this body, in this culture. We enjoy a lot of them. So those are related to all, all kinds of things. Race, you know, everyone that's listening, sitting here right now is white. That's a huge systemic advantage. Economics, we are, uh, I don't know that any of us struggles for food or lacks shelter. Um, even more so, I've never worried that I wouldn't have the basics of life. Never. I've never had that worry. So this is a systemic advantage that I enjoy. Safety. I, I have this experience that I'm safe. I don't carry the fear around with me all the time that I'm going to be um, assaulted on my way out this door or that the ferry I'm going to ride home in a few minutes uh, is not well maintained and it's going to sink. You know, none of these things. I just have this assumption that I, I live a safe, safe life. And we could name these. We could continue to name these. There are many, many, many of these kind of assumptions that we carry in this heavenly realm that we live in. Uh, but what, the one that I think is really pertinent here is that we have access to awakening. We have access to the teachings and the tools that it takes to become aware and not be caught in a cycle of, of perpetual suffering. So the net result of us living in this time and place, in this body, in this culture, is that we really don't know how to suffer. We don't know how to, how to go without and cope with that and find a, still a meaningful, purposeful life. It's a kind of suffering that we carry by living in this, in this heavenly realm. So the, some of the suffering we carry around is that we expect that life is going to go our way. And we're shocked when it doesn't. I mean, just out and out shocked. Wait a minute. Things always go right for me. How could it not go right? That happens to other people. Hmm. Yeah, we, we, we are so used to being at the top of the heap, we have no idea what it's like to feel the weight of others on top of us. Hmm. Our minds are, in the, in the words of this sutra, consumed with gain. We're consumed with gain. We think that it's our birthright to get and get and get and get. So this is a kind of suffering that we carry. So our practice has to be grounded in a reality of knowing how things are. We have to be grounded in seeing clearly the way it is for us. And uh, a lot of the time, our gains... And our, and our pursuit of gains are invisible to us because we just assume that this is the way it's going to be, the way it's always been, the way it always will be. Hmm. And then when something goes wrong, we really suffer. We can see none of the, all the things that are going right, but the one thing that goes wrong, boy, that's going to stand out, and we're going to focus on it. There's a, there's a great... Uh, 
Buddhist teacher lives in Australia, an English guy named Ajahn Brahmavamso. goes by Ajahn Brahm. If you ever have a chance to, to look up his Dharma talks or his videos, it's, it, he's great. He's, he's like a Dharma comedian. He's, he's really, really good. A lot of fun. But he tells a story about when he was building this monastery in Australia. He was building a brick wall. And he's not a bricklayer. He doesn't, you know, he, he, he did a, what he thought was a really good job. But one of the bricks was out of alignment. And so this otherwise beautifully made brick wall, it's got one brick that's just not right. And that's the only thing he sees. <laughs> Every time he sees the wall, his mind goes right to that brick. And, and uh, he can't appreciate the thousands of other bricks that are just right. But he's got to look at that one. Uh, this is the suffering we carry as the, in the heavenly realm. You know, we're so used to everything going right. We want to see the perfect brick wall. And if it's not right, it really troubles us. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with that kind of disappointment. Uh, so contrast this with the Japanese ethic of wabi-sabi, this ethic that shows, that takes a broken thing, a broken teacup, for instance, and now mends it back together, uh, fuses it back together with, with gold as the, as the uh, glue that holds the pieces together. Sometimes finely drilled holes through the cup that golden thread is threaded around and, and brings it all back together. And in that aesthetic, the imperfection is what makes it beautiful. You know, in, in Ajahn Brahm's wall, the imperfection makes it unacceptable. He has to go back to. But in Wabi Sabi, ah, now you've got a real teacup. It's, it's, uh, it's not just in the heavenly realm anymore. So the eight worldly winds, they blow everywhere. We can't avoid them. They are coming at us all the time. We want to escape them by living completely in the gain part, the praise part, the pleasure part, and the happiness part. That's where we want to, we want to hide in those. Right? That's who I am. I'm just going to get more and more, and my life is going properly when they're all just coming in like this. Uh, but that, of course, isn't possible. That sutra says, now, gain arises for a well-instructed disciple of the noble ones. He reflects, gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He discerns it as it actually is. So if we practice with these winds as they really are, when gain comes our way, we see, ah, gain is present. It is inconstant. It will go. Um, Ajahn Chah likes to tell a story about he sees the glass that he's using as already broken. Already broken. Even when it's not broken. So when it does break, he says, ah, yes, this was coming. He sees it as it really is. It is broken pieces, shattered. It is ground completely back to sand like it started before they melted the, the sand into glass. That's where it's headed. 
and he sees that. So the gain of the beautiful glass that he has, that he gets to drink his water from every day, is just waiting to go back to what it was. And when it happens, he's not surprised. So when we practice with this, it's really it can be really hard because we don't want those things that we don't want, right? We don't want loss. We don't want to be thought of badly by people. We don't want to have moments of unhappiness. We don't want any of those things. But they are here. They are going to come. They are, they are coming all the time. And it takes, it takes some real courage to be with that. This isn't easy. This isn't easy. So I'd like to suggest an analogy we can use for how we can be with this. These eight worldly winds are blowing, sometimes very strongly. Sometimes they're like a hurricane. They just threaten to sweep us away. So if you look at a beautiful tree like this, outside this window, there's a, a great big maple tree, an old maple tree, beautiful. And when a strong wind like that comes, if you look up at the top, it's swaying and flowing, sometimes back and forth, so much so that it looks like the leaves might come off or the branches might break and fall. But if you follow down the tree, as it gets closer and closer to the ground, the movement gets smaller and smaller until by the time it gets all the way to its roots, it's completely still and solid, not moving at all. It can be both solid in its roots and flexible and flowing in its branches at the same time. So I'd like to use this as an analogy of how we can practice with being in these eight worldly winds. Now, I'm only going to talk about three things here, but really, this is the heart of our practice. We could talk about all kinds of different ways to practice with this, but I want to throw out three that I think might be useful and pertinent to us. So the first route is to know what it is that we resist. You know, we can't be with things as they are unless we know what it is that we're pushing away. So to do that, um, we, have to, we have to come to our body. We have to get to know what, is the sen- what are the sensations in our bodies when we are resisting something. And know that for yourself. You know, and, and let's not start with some huge thing. You know, let's not start with our political situation, for instance. You know, that's overwhelming. Let's start with little things. You know, let's start with what, what it feels like when you pick up the apple in the fruit bowl and you see that it's rotten on the bottom. And you now have, you now have a rotten apple that you thought you were going to eat. You resist that. So what does that feel like in your body right now? You know, what, what is going on? And, and become intimate with that. For myself, I've learned, to, I've learned that when I'm resisting something, I tense muscles in my body that I didn't even know I had. And I don't know they're tense until I stop and I pay attention to them. And in doing so, I'm able to say, and a little bit 
my shoulders will drop. A little bit, my back's, back will flex. A little bit, my hands will relax. I've, I've learned to notice this in myself. So I can notice in my body that I'm resisting something before I notice in my mind that I'm resisting something. So I suggest that you spend some time getting to, to know this. So let's do this right now. So come back to yourself and notice what are you resisting right in this moment. What does it feel like in your body right now to resist? Maybe you feel resistant to my words or maybe to the sound of the music coming in through the window. Maybe it's a pain in your body that you resist. I'd just like to suggest that, that, you hold, that you hold on to that feeling so that you know how to know that you're resisting, that you gain increasing intimacy with knowing your own resistance as a bodily sensation. So the other thing that we might want to notice about our resistance is noticing what you habitually set yourself against. Because we do this in patterns. You know, we, we resist things based on what happened to us in our childhood, maybe, what our family was like, what our family resisted, what our culture resisted. There's, there's patterns here. And you, and you begin to recognize the sorts of things that you resist. I recognize in myself that I resist authority. You know, I, I didn't grow up with a wholesome relationship to authority figures. So I have in my mental formations this idea that authority is not benevolent, that authority has some agenda that isn't mine. So I resist authority. I mean, I would have been a terrible person to go into the military. I mean, I, I would have really resisted having someone say, jump, and then expecting me to say, how high? You know, I'd, I'd say, why? You know, I'm going to resist. This is the kind of thing that I push away. And it's really wonderful to get to know what it is that you push away. So that when, you, when it comes up again, you have some clarity about it. And you can choose, is this something I want to resist, or is this something that's just a projection onto the situation. So that's the first route, is to know what you resist. So the second route is the opposite side. Know what it is that you grasp after. Know what it feels like in your body. Just like you can ch check in and see what it feels like to resist something, you can check into your body and see what it is to pursue to grasp after, to chase, to want. All these are the same, you know, different words for the same thing. That, that belief that I'll be better if I get that 
or if that happens. So again, take a moment to come back to yourself and check right now, what is it that you are grasping after in this very moment? Feel the sensation in your body that is how you grasp. Getting to know this feeling is getting to know how you know. It's really important to know how you know that you're caught by grasping. And just like we can notice the patterns of, grasp in, uh, of resistance, we can notice the patterns of grasping in our life. You, know, you, you, you can do this partly intellectually. You know, are, are you always seeking safety or love or connection or solitude? Or is there a pattern for you? I always want more of this. And as soon as you get it, you're, you're off, it satisfies you for a moment, but then you're off seeking more. It satisfies you for a moment, then you're off seeking more. One of the things that, that is a, a pattern for many of us is perpetually seeking the past. And what do I mean by that? Um, when we pursue the past, we're dwelling on our, our past wrongdoings or disappointments, and we continually go back there and go back there and go back there. We're, we're grasping after something there. And when we do that, it colors our present moment. We're not able to see the present moment clearly because we're grasping after the past. Um, you know, when, the way made to, to distinguish this is to distinguish between sorrow and grief. You know, Sorrow is the, the feeling of a natural response to loss. And grief is wanting to rewrite the past going back and, and just obsessing over it, being unwilling to accept things as they are. So for some of us, this pursuing the past is a kind of putting ourselves in perpetual grief about what we, what we did. And it can be a pattern. So we can notice a pattern like that. It's a very common one. And ultimately, forgiveness is what allows us to stop pursuing the past. You can see that this really touches on a lot of our practice. You know, this framing it this way in these eight worldly wins, we really could talk about many different tentacles of our practice. So the third and final route I want to bring up is uh, embracing gain and loss as our teacher. So the uninstructed person in the sutra, they want to, own, to gain and pursue that and push away any loss, that's how they engage with gain and loss, by grasping what they like and pushing away what they don't like. But what would happen if instead we turned to these things, whether they're things we like or dislike, and we saw them as our teacher, and we embraced them as our teacher? So a loss that comes is not something to be fled, it's something to be accepted and embraced that can teach us something very important in the moment. 
we can turn a transient loss into an enduring awakening. But only if we're willing to face it. If we're not willing to face it, it won't happen. So the challenge is to figure out how to live in the midst of these gains and losses without either clinging or rejecting them. And this is, this is really our practice, to know how to live in the middle of this life as it is without getting attached or running away. One of the ways that, that helps me to do this is to recognize that um, I really need things to, to come and go in my life. I need things not to be there in order for me to appreciate them when they are. And I was thinking as I, as I uh, was eating this morning, we live in this time where we can get at the grocery store pretty much anything we want all year long. So I eat a banana usually every morning. All year long. I, I do not deeply appreciate that banana. <clears throat> I never have to do without it. It's always there. I can always go to Safeway. More bananas, more bananas, more bananas. But this morning, I ate from our own garden a cucumber and a plum and an apple. And they were so precious because they've been growing and ripening and they were just right and this weekend, Sandra picked some off the tree or off the ground, and she brought them in, and we had them in the kitchen, and I was able to go, wow, I get this. I get to enjoy this. And I really enjoyed all three of those. But I only enjoyed it because I know that it's very brief. They will not be there soon, and they weren't there just a week ago. The sutra says, he does not welcome the arisen gain or rebel against the arisen loss. He does not welcome the arisen status or rebel against arisen disgrace. She does not welcome the arisen praise or rebel against the arisen censure. She does not welcome the arisen pleasure or rebel against the arisen, arisen pain. As he thus abandons welcoming and rebelling, he is released from birth aging, and death, from sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despaired. She is released, I tell you, from suffering and stress. This is the difference, this the distinction, this the distinguishing factor between the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones and the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person. So that passage is saying the person who is free does not cling for what they want and push away what they don't want. They see both as their teacher and they embrace them both as their teacher. So we can do this practice in, uh, in our sitting meditation. It's a perfect chance to watch things arise and pass away without judgment. So we sit down on the cushion, we notice our body, we notice the pain here, we can be with it. We can see it exist. We can see it shift. We can see it 
decline, and then the next thing arises, the thought. Same way. It might be a thought we really like, and we want to keep on that thought. But we can see that it appears, it stays a while, and it goes away. So um, sitting meditation is really lovely for this. It, it gives us, it helps us figure out how to stay present with courage. Because it's not always easy to sit. Sometimes it's really pleasant, and sometimes it really stinks. You know, it's just one insult to our, uh, our ego after the other. You know, it's no fun. But it gives us the courage. So, when we can stay present like that, we have the chance of being liberated. We can get free from the cycle of grabbing after and pushing away. So that's how we practice with disappointment. We welcome it as our teacher. So in our case, we had to let go of doing this transmission ceremony that felt really important, felt really important. I, w I was watching the Sangha and participating with the Sangha as we moved deeper and deeper and deeper in our practice of understanding the ethical precepts. And we felt perched on the edge as a Sangha to take the step of having this transmission ceremony. And we really wanted that. And then what shows up? Reality. And it went away. So now, can we embrace that as our teacher? Can we see that we can practice these precepts without this ceremony? That the ceremony isn't the practice of the precepts. The practice of the precepts is something that we're already doing. We've already come so far together to learn this and to support each other as we practice it. We can let go of grasping after what we thought was the gain of this ceremony. Or we can let go of pushing away the feeling of disappointment and loss when the ceremony didn't take place. And instead, we can come back to life as it is, which is we are free as individuals and as a Sangha to practice those mindfulness trainings fully right now. And hopefully we'll um, have another opportunity to do this, this ceremony. We're already working on rescheduling that. But we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to grasp after that. We can right now in this moment practice these, these ethical trainings. Don't have to wait for anybody. Knowing this, the wise person, mindful, ponders all changing conditions. Desirable things don't charm the mind. Undesirable ones bring no resistance. So thank you very much for your kind attention.